0: Color Two Podcast is back after a successful first season. For season two, I'm really looking forward to visiting new and exciting locations. I've been to London, Sydney, Taipei, Hong Kong, Manhattan, seeking out colorists who have an interesting tale to tell. You ready to have some fun. If you look inside, it, you can see every possible color. Welcome to episode eight of the Color Tour Podcast. It's Toronto. And this week I'm talking to Wade Odlum and Eric Whipp, who are the owners and colorists at Alter Ego in Toronto. They started this facility about 10 years ago. It's a base light shop running six rooms. They have flames, they have finishing, and they're getting into production as well. I started working with them, colouring with them, back in the early 2000s at Cutting Edge in Brisbane. So there's some stories about that. There's some stories about how they started the facility, why they choose Baselight, why they have LG OLEDs in all of their color rooms. What are the challenges of staying on top in today's color grading or post-production industry? And I also have a good chat with Eric about how he got into grading Mad Max. What were the challenges on that movie? And did he really do 100 Sky replacements in the base light? find out that and more as well we listen to the podcast enjoy it so we uh we have relocated to the uh what color room is this guys color two color two uh here at alter ego how many rooms do you have
1: uh we have five uh color suites well four color suites and one color theater Uh,
0: that was eric because i know you've got no pictures and uh this is wade hi there These guys are partners here, as I explained earlier. In uh, oh, here we go, and they are mainly uh, a colour house, and that's how they started. Uh, But also, they're moving into other areas. So, just why don't you just talk about what rooms you've got and what kit you've got?
1: Uh, We have. we used to like the uh, last are you cutting this?
0: <laughs> <laughs> look like
1: me <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we have so we have five color suites we run we all run base lights uh, all with panels all you know there's it's all proper gear. when you say panels you mean the big the
0: blackboards
1: the big blackboard
2: yeah. all blackboard
1: ones. Yeah, we do, but we have we have one of the Blackboard twos, but we just found that you know because we're all jumping from room to room and we're also used to Blackboard ones uh, that it was easier to just keep them consistent. So we just we fitted all the rooms with Blackboard ones, and then we have that's on our color side, and then all of our assistants have uh, laptops that we they use to
2: do EDL prep and all that kind of stuff. Um, all running light as well so that they can set up a job that's just, they need to get on to that they can render in the background of the systems, but they need to sort of get on to do the final transform strips and any of the other sort of fine tuning, but everything else can be done in the background.
0: So how many colorists? Five rooms? Six colorists. Six colorists,
2: Six colors, yeah, and four assistants. So the assistants, we don't have an assistant each. We share between all of us because of the nature of the way that it works with yeah. a job. Like we'll get an EDL that assistant. We'll try and prep it, and they'll sort of stay with it, or they'll stay with the particular the brand or the client, and that might switch between colors, but they'll be the common thing that runs across with that with that client the whole time. That's been very useful because there's a
1: lot of commercials we do that are, uh, you know, repeat. You know, they, they might be like a let's say it's a McDonald's commercial, and then, and they might use that same footage again on another. Add down the road and then you don't want to then be having a different assistant going well, I don't know where that footage is I have to go track it down you know at least that f- assistant knows where everything is and can keep on top of it
0: well that's certainly and you know I've had a tour here and that's one of the things that obviously differentiates yourself from the smaller shops is being able to pull things back from the past going well I know where that is we did that two years ago we've got this we've got these elements so when a client comes in everything's there
2: yeah every project we've ever done is is archived so we can always pull back the project and if we get the source media back we can just load everything up again we also lto all of our um all of the renders color renders from here so that we can always come back in that way Um, and then we also have a, a large near line where we copy all of the drives to that come in so everything sits on there for Usually, you know, up to two months. So if a job comes back for a pickup within that two-month period, we've got all the footage, so we can bring it back and we can we can show everything in, in sequence. And the
0: wilds, the rushes, where
2: do they go? Do they go back? The master file will go back. We'll keep a copy of all of the rushes on our system here. Oh, if good. we get all, all the masters on our system yeah. here, and then usually the editorial will keep all the the other stuff, and then they'll send it back to the client eventually.
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah, the industry. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm sure it's like this everywhere, but the industry in Toronto definitely has turned into uh, an industry of, you know, it's what's the new saying? It's it's, uh, it's not over till it's off air. So we get a lot of pickups. You know, you will be will be in the middle of a grading session, and uh, we'll we'll get word that the whole spot is unapproved now, and everything has to go back to edit. Right, and so it happens a lot. So we've got to be able to. Do the, it, we spend more? T- we spend most of our time doing pickup shots for jobs, right? It's so many, uh, so many pickups, which is the other reason for five rooms is useful. So that while yeah. you know, three or four of you know, four of the rooms are busy yeah. non stop, one room's at least free, maybe to jump in and do some pickup shots from two days ago.
0: Yeah, my uh, funniest latest saying of the week it's 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 easier to get paid than it is to get a locked cut. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right.
2: We I'd say we probably get. 25, 30% of our sessions, we, it's, a, it's a final cut with no pickups. Everything has pickups. Yeah, it's just now, and part of the process is we have to keep moving because the deadline doesn't move. So if we don't start color, if we waited till we had an approved edit, you'd be online on the same day and on air on the same day. We and just there's the, keep it going. the
1: booking situation. So, you know, people will book us. Often color gets booked very early because we get, you know, especially Wade and I, we're, we're booked way in advance. So people will often book us the color sessions sort of set in stone, but also you know, the, the finishing sessions, the VFX sessions and the flame sessions are all booked as well. Yeah. And so when the edit suddenly unraveled and is no longer approved, we can't stop. So we'll just do whatever is approved yesterday yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and keep going and then we'll worry about pickups later.
0: So how did you you get started? Because how did you get to be what you are with Six Colour Suites and VFX and now moving in? How did that start initially? So uh,
1: I, you know, I worked in Australia for many years and then I moved to Canada in 2002 and I worked here in Toronto uh, at a facility called Toybox at the time. And I, I worked in commercials for a few years here and I quite liked it here in Toronto and it was a really good good place to work and I had a good uh, set of clients following me and it, it was great. And then Toybox got bought out by Technicolor and the commercial world wasn't really suited to that so it didn't work so well. And so I, I decided to go back to Australia for a bit but I always felt like I hadn't really finished with Toronto, I liked it here. Um, So I worked in Australia for a few years and then I was talking to some people here in Toronto about how the industry was and they said well kind of it's like there's a bit of a hole since since I left there was one other company and they they kind of they described it to me as like that company won the lotto because there was no more competition they just had everything and we're like well that seems a bit weird that one company and that's it for all of Toronto that seems a bit maybe there's room for competition so we came up with the idea to like well let's start something so we started very small originally and we so this was in 2007 like 11 years ago so we weren't sure when we're starting do we you know how big do we do it like do we need to actually everything was still shot on film then like do we can we get our film scan somewhere else or do we have to have our own film scanner like we weren't sure Uh, But eventually, you know, as we started looking into it, it was like, all right, we've got to handle everything ourselves. And 2007 was just on the cusp of digital grading. So everybody up until that point, pretty much around the world, was still, all commercials were done on telecines. And so, you know, a few people were dabbling with non-linear grading, but it was all for features or for a long format work. No one was doing commercials because the turnaround time and the rendering time wasn't quite developed yet and the scanning time, everything is shot film. How are you going to scan your commercial in a day and get it around and pump it out again? That was the problem. So I went gallivanting around the world looking at different technology and looked at different film scanners and looked at different uh, systems. and. It was difficult in Canada at the time because we weren't even in HD yet. We're still in NTSC, and it was all you know, with you know, you're transferring 24 to 30 with a 2 3 pull down, and can the system do a 2 3 pull down? Like, no, there's all this sort of these questions to be asked. But we, we worked out all the technology, and we decided to, when, that the best way to open a new company would, would be to open it as non linear and blow the, the market away in this town.
0: Which was traditionally the older way still film.
1: Everybody's still on film, on telecine's. And we're like, what if we opened a new company that's non-linear so you can watch your commercial in one go? Yeah. No one was able to do that no. in color. No. it sounds antiquated yeah. by today's standard, but it was ridiculous. No one was able to watch a commercial. Yeah. Uh, so why don't we open non-linear and let's, let's do two suites and then two uh flame suites so we can do a little bit of color a little bit of finishing we'll keep it s- simple we'll get our own scanner so we can handle everything and we sort of worked out all the math and the timing and how to process and we got uh film light to help us with uh some of the technology behind we've got this proprietary sort of stuff written for us which is great so the film scanner whenever it finished scanning a shot it would automatically kick off copies over to base light renders and over to the base light so that then you know shots would just appear in your timeline as you're as you're scanning and it was great um, so that's really how we started and then of course you know at the time it was a little nerve-wracking because there was no one there really wasn't anyone else in the world other than I think the mill in London were dabbling a little bit in it but no one was really doing commercials full-time in non-linear. so we were probably the first place in yeah. probably North America yeah. to do it.
0: I remember I demoed a Resolve to you so that's probably why you bought a baseline. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really slick well, moment.
1: Yeah no well you know we looked at every we it was a hard decision that was an agonizing decision um, and I at the time I had just come off doing Happy Feet on uh Nakoda system mm. and you know, I was used to Nakoda, and I thought, well, this is great, and maybe yeah. we go with that, but Nakoda wasn't ready for commercials. It couldn't handle time code, and how do you do handles on a shot if you need to extend it? So all these things hadn't been developed yet, right? And so the only system that was really capable of doing, ticking off all the boxes and doing everything in 2007 was Baselight. And we still have
0: to be able to put everything to tape at the end of a job. You had actually used it in a facility, had you? I had actually never used Baselight. Because you'd come through DaVinci when we worked together, yep. and then Nucoda. Yep. And it was DaVinci here, wasn't it, when you worked here, yep. Toybox?
1: Yeah, and so I had actually never used Baselight, but I had, I had done the research and I'd, I'd gone to a place in New Zealand and tested it out, and they were using it for long format work. And, and I, was, I was convinced after the few trips that I had and seeing all the things it can do. I knew that this was the system. Um, plus I love the architecture of it, the way it's built. I could see that it was kind of future-proofing itself. You know, yeah. it was one of the systems that could handle OFX work and using plugins and things. I knew that it wasn't limited to. and I think at, at the time, Resolve was limited to like twelve windows or, yeah, or it was, something. Or it was. It
0: was uh, and yeah. Luster,
1: no, sorry, Luster was limited. That's right, Luster. You Luster, could you could still only do like yeah. twenty-four layers or something, and that yeah, was yeah, it. Yeah. And you're like, come on, yeah. we're in the nonlinear world. We don't be don't limit us. Yeah, it was so there were lots of problems with all the other systems and nothing quite was at the, they're all very close, but nothing was quite there. So, so Baselight ultimately became the, the system that we chose. Um, part of the other reason for that is that we knew that we had to compete in this specific market with people on non-linear, I'm um, on, sorry, on linear telecines. So in the telecine world, you would have like a, you know, cause you're shuffling film through you would have uh, a frame store where you store still frames and a little mixer and you can key and you can wipe and you can do all this stuff. We had to be able to do that, but non-linear. Like we had to be able to compete with the, the stuff that people were used to. Like we can't go, we can't go backwards, we can only go forwards. Um, and so basically it seemed to be I could do keys and comps and things, I could, I could do the same things that they were doing on a mixer. Yep. Um, so that was, that was another important point. So, I don't know how much we need to go into the story, but anyway, needless to say, when, you, when we opened in Toronto and started doing demos for people saying, this is the future of color correction, look, you can watch your ad in context and you can do unlimited layers and you can, oh. instantly people were blown away. Um, yeah. Our biggest problem was working out how are we gonna render all this in time? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, but that's where you just have to spend a lot of money buying the best gear at the time.
0: Right? So, wh- why? 10, 11 years, how has it changed the industry, like color correction industry? Like uh, you'd say a lot or similar, but different challenges or? I think
2: now it's less about basic color correction. It's more about completing an image. We become an extension of the cinematographer or the director or that sort of, you know, situation where we're trying to finish an image now. in the city, it's a little bit disjointed between the production and the post production, but I think where we can really come into our own is trying to bridge that gap and deal with the DP and the director and sort of say to them, hey, you know, if we get a reference, oh, we wanted to do this, but we got unlucky with the weather, what can we do? We often get them, you know, saying, hey, can you replace the sky? Can you do something to match this to this? Because the other thing, the other challenge that we run into here is that we have to do French and English for every spot, just about. So they'll be checkerboarding everything, they'll put the French talent in and the English talent, and the French talent and the English talent. So they'll be doing everything at the same time. So we then have to, in the space of that same period of time, do the French and the English. We have to make sure that we can make everything happen in the right amount of time. So getting it done in a four hour session for two 30 second spots and two 15s is, is a bit of a challenge, but because of the way that we work now with all the nonlinear color correction, and everything that we've kind of got a workflow happening, we can, we can set it all up that we can, you know, we often do the English spot first, um, treat that the way that we need to treat, we'll do all our sky replacements in color, we'll do any flares, add any grain, do any compositing fixes that we can in here, and then we can hopefully apply a lot of that across to the French. Yeah. The big thing for when I moved here is like, I never realized we had to do French spots, so the, I got to the end of my first session, I was like, okay, cool, we're done, and they're like, what about the French? Like, what French? didn't realize there's a whole different... So sometimes they actually bring different actors in. It's completely different actors. So unless the actor is carded with both unions, it's different actors and they'll have different They'll look different. They'll have different hair. They'll be different heights. They'll have different. It's not
0: the case of just going. Here's the grey.
2: No, they'll have different. They'll have different clothing S- on. So the keys that work
1: now don't work. Sometimes that's frustrating too because you'll get a shot. You know, the there might be an English shot and there's a woman wearing a red dress and then there's a cool blue city behind her and you've got this you know juxtaposition of the colours. Everything's great and you're like fantastic. Let's move to the French one. Oh, she's wearing a black dress, mm-hmm. and your whole look changes, right?
0: So we're here 2018. What's your typical grading ad? What? How many versions? How long do you get? Are you billing on the hour or is it like an all-in
1: thing? Uh, That's really hard to answer. I don't know if there is an easy answer for any of that. Let
0: let Wade have a go. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Wade, do
2: you got an answer? (laughs) Up until, I'd say up until probably, maybe six, 12 months ago, we were a lot of two, four hour sessions a day. So we do a lot of just 30 second English, 30 second French, and then some 15 cut downs usually. That'd be the morning and then a different commercial in the afternoon. So you do, you know, Nine till one and two till six, something like that. But in the last twelve months, it's changed so much with uh, people wanting more social media stuff. So now, instead of it was always like, "Oh, that's just for web, don't worry about it." Now it's like, "Hey, we shot it at the same time. We want to finish it, so we might get a sixty, a forty-five, a thirty, a fifteen. That's for you know TV and web, and then there'll be the social media versions that are." four fives, one, ones, nine, sixteens, and any length, it doesn't matter.
0: Are you doing all that reframing or is that going out the back no, of the system or
2: something? We'll mock
0: up the colour, our assistant
2: sorry, the framing. Our assistants so will set everything it, up.
0: 4 k feet. B
2: We'll set everything up with it so the clients can see it, but usually it's a lot of the time it's the it's just a lift from the actual edit themselves. So then the reframing of panning and scanning will happen in the online suite. Um, f- the big challenge with with all of that sort of stuff is telling the client that or making them understand the requirements of doing the social media versions now. It takes a long time when you've got so many different versions. Yeah. We have to check that everything is common, which shots are common, which shots aren't. There's a great tool inside um, Baselight that allows us to multi-paste onto, and it will recognize all the shots that are exactly the same, and then just, it'll differentiate the ones that aren't, yeah. which it, which is great. I mean, once we sort of got that tool, it really changed yeah. the ability to do those things in quickly. can do that. Before we'd have to go through and manually check every shot. Is this common? Is it not? What are the ins and what are the outs? Um, But now you've got to get your clients to understand that if you want to do a 9.16 version, really you should be grading in 4K. To be able to get a nineteen twenty tall image, you really need to be working at at 4K. And that for a lot of people I find is an afterthought. And that's really the big, the big change for us has been the education of clients. You know, everybody kind of knew, and I think when Alter Ego started, part of the pushback to what we don't want to do Linear, uh, non-linear color correction is, we know how long it takes us to do in the linear world, we know everything, now you're asking us to change. So everybody got around to changing that and now the advent of uh, social media and all the different versions has made everybody change again. Well, what am I delivering? Do I turn the camera sideways? Do I shoot it this way? Do we do it in 4K? How do we go about doing it? Um, and then you add into that all of the pickups that we do and there's so much uncertainty in a session. Everyone's like, well, what edit are we looking at? We might have three, ses- three edits lined up, version one, two and three and the first thing is like, which version are we going with? And the clients will be, well, we don't have any approvals yet. So we'll pick a version, we'll do it. And then we'll do all the different yeah. the shots that are different in the other versions.
0: So the other thing, the thing I notice when I come in this room, it's a nice sized room. I post some photos, is that the monitors are LG OLEDs. So obviously they're 16 by nine. How do you go about getting a four by three or four by four Instagram image up on there to a client? Do you have a cutout? Do you actually change the monitor? Where do you do that?
2: There's masks inside masks. the base light that we have preset, um, but we actually put a. I did a whole. Um, tourism campaign that was all designed for 916 to be stitched together inside a um, shipping container actually for an installation yeah. so we actually brought a, t- a tv in on a stand that was 916 and we watched the entire thing that way as opposed to trying to pillar box it we we rotated and we put it onto a onto a monitor properly so we could see it at one-to-one Whoa,
0: that's yeah we
2: don't we generally a lot of the stuff that we do for social media is more like oh, that's a lift, don't worry, we'll fix it later on. But they still want to watch it in context a lot of the time, so we'll just, we'll, you know, pillarbox the edge of it. But if need be, we can bring a monitor in that's, you know, full scale for them.
0: So was it a tough call to say, move off a CRT or go from a traditional Sony OLED or a Flanders, what most people would use in this type of facility to go to using what we could say as a consumer telly? Was that a big decision to make or...? Is it really well accepted and clients go, I love love it? I think,
1: I mean, cause we're mostly a commercial facility. The big, uh, the big thing was keeping a large size uh, image and keeping two different monitors in the room. That's, it was a big thing for us because, you know, obviously the colorist needs a monitor that they can look at and rely on, but then the clients need, really, they need exactly the same picture oh, yeah. um, because, uh, they're the ones making all the comments. Yeah. And so we couldn't have, you know, we tried mixing monitors at one point. We had, you know, one different type of monitor is the grading monitor and a different, yeah, you know, you can never quite get them the same. And uh, you know what, and we, we switched all our monitors out uh, about a year and a half ago uh, to these OLEDs because the industry is changing so much. You know, 4K and HDR are, you know, coming, you know, obviously it's more and more in the long form, but it's coming into the horizon for commercial soon, but not yet. And, you know, it, it's a bit of a wild west out there, like what's happening, yeah. you know, it, and with, we've got 10 suites here. So, uh, fitting out, you know, 40, $50,000 monitors in I each I uh, suite,
0: agree.
1: Yeah. It starts. To, it's just started to add up, but we wanted something that had good blacks, good highlights, that was calibratable. Um, and that was a representation
2: of what people are watching at home on TV because ultimately we're doing... Yeah, our biggest problem is the, is we find is replicating what people are seeing it as. And I know that's not something that we should necessarily be striving to, but the problem is our clients will walk away and look at that and say, hey, it doesn't look like this on my thing. Can you change it? And it's like, well, we try and explain to them this is the, this is the thing. But I think a lot of people still, you know, still sort of say, well, what's the consumer looking at it like? And we're playing down to the lowest common denominator, but at least with these LG OLEDs, as far as I believe, it's the Panasonic and the Sony have got the same screen inside it Mm. that we're all kind of looking at the same thing.
0: And you said they're, they're looking at their thing. How much is their thing, a phone, an iPad, or is it still TV for Toronto?
1: It's a bit of both. Like, definitely, it, well again, it comes down to what we're delivering. Like, there's the TV commercials, and for when they when people are doing TV commercials, they generally will look at Still, at TV yeah. commercial at TV. Um, but you know, it's
2: it's just a moving it's it a is. it's a um, moving target. If I say,
0: like kids don't watch TV anymore. Kids do they? like under twenty five, they, they they don't watch telly.
2: Everything's on an iPad or like a phone. Do they, they don't or... watch
0: telly. If yeah. they do, they download it, but they probably don't watch it on the TV. It's it's changing, the gold play is
2: changing. Yeah, and the hard thing for us is like at least an OLED represents the sort of screen that people are watching on. And we you know, we talked about do we get this do we get the higher supposed to higher end broadcast ones that are smaller, but how do you check keys on something that's twenty four inch or twenty eight inch when your clients are watching it on a sixty five? You know, you need to be able to see everything on a large scale. Yeah. to make sure that everything can, is can clean s- and tidy. Can you
1: really judge your green structure of what it's gonna look like on a 65 inch TV on a 24 inch monitor?
2: Not yeah. really. I mean, we spent years, like Eric went to NAB for years and years, just trying to find what's there and kind of come back every year going, yeah ah It's just not quite there yet. What's the next? <laughs> every what's the year, next every thing? year, it's
1: like, you oh, someone's developing something, and oh, it's going to be out in two years. And you're know, like, great, I great. Know, well, we just had to make the move. We had yeah. all of our
2: TVs were dying. We had to make a move. Somewhere. So we
1: we went gradually. So we were on CRTs, and they were amazing, and then they stopped making them. So we went out and bought every last CRT in the country. And we stockpiled them. And as the tubes started dying and TV started, we kept switching them out and and then, but then that was it, there were no more. And then we went looking for the next best thing. And at the time, that was probably, I don't know, seven years ago or something. At the time was the Panasonic plasmas were pretty good. Um, But that was really the next best thing that we had because, I think Dolby were about to release their monitor but it hadn't come out yet or something. I can't remember when the, yeah. the exact time frame but so we ended up switching a lot of the monitors over to Panasonic plasmas but they have issues in whites so if you get too much white and all that kind of stuff but it, it was the next best thing. So we were on those for a while and then they stopped making plasma <laughs> so we bought every last plasma in the country and then uh, and then they all started dying and they were like all right well we've, we've got to switch over. But I feel like we're on the cusp of, again we're still on that cusp of technology change and I think monitors are gonna change again and and we're seeing some great monitors
2: come out on yeah. the market now uh,
0: just strap a, an iPad pro up there.
2: that's all that's <laughs> all we need just that. keep everyone an iPhone as they walk in oh, they can watch yeah. it on that
0: maybe have oh, everyone's got their own iPad well yeah. we the, the one thing It's we actually also,
2: not so stupid that may be the, <laughs> the future <laughs> we got in the situation because we have five flame suites as well so between five color suites and five flame suites it's, well, when I walk into the, the flame suite, it looks different. What's going on? We're like, well, there's lighting differences, this and that, and then we just ended up actually, so we have, bought, went and bought 15 of these new OLEDs to put in two in each color suite and one in each flame suite so that everybody's the same across the board. And we calibrate them the same. We have a we have one monitor on a, on a stand that we wheel around, and we can check everything against it. And we can make sure that it's all sort of
1: and all know, of correct. the all of the actual calibration process we do through a lut box behind. So we we just basically turn these monitors into into reset to zero, and yeah. we don't put any of the processing on, and we do all the color through a lut box, and the results are pretty good.
0: So you guys are primarily obviously commercials. Uh, do you get involved in long form projects or drama or Netflix type
1: shows we don't do uh, Netflix type shows at the moment but we do the occasional movie or documentary and stuff like that occasionally Um, you know I I personally I I take on like a fairly big movie every couple of years and then go back to commercials Um, and then through the facility we've done handful of some fun little projects and movies
2: yeah we get involved in it's usually if a director or a DP wants us to do something as opposed to somebody necessarily seeking us out as a long-form facility in, in the hard thing with a commercial facility is the the hours don't mix and the type of clientele and the type yeah. of requirements it's very hard to to do both um, I'm in kind of the middle of doing a feature at the moment but we've been coloring it for months and it's not due until for another six months from now we're trying to prep things and get things running but that's sort of feature that's much easier to take on because we can work in and around our things it's still gonna be a reasonable you know reasonable size film and it's got a lot of visual effects and those sort of things but it's very hard just to work in with the you know the requirements like we were saying before with with commercials where it's like oh we need you to do a pickup. so you might have thought well I can just get onto my feature now it's like no no no. we've now got clients coming in for a pickup you know scene because the edit is now unapproved and reapproved and changed and everything so we do a lot of music videos and a lot of um, short films and you know small docs and that sort of thing though but it's usually if we take on a feature it's because we want to do it there's something about it that we'd like.
0: How do you keep yourselves current like you guys have been here grading so 15 odd years you've been here for 11 or 10 how like when the client walks in a room out of you just keep upbeat all the time do you, do you or do you not <laughs> <laughs> uh i mean that's
1: part of the i'm still, still stuck on the blue green transfer <laughs> look yeah <laughs> that's part of the art of uh, what makes a good colorist right is you've got to put on a show every day you know you we literally it's like you dim the lights and you set everything up like we used to take a lot of pride in the small details like the coffee has to be right the uh the pens and the paper have to be ready. All this, all the little details make a difference because you don't want distractions while you're grading. You want to just be able to get through it and everybody's comfortable, everybody's happy. We're always looking for what's new, what else can we do, what else can we offer? Like it's, you know, we, it's the the plussing effect. Like how can we plus this project? How can we add more to it, right? Um, One
2: really nice thing with six colorists is you can bounce ideas off each other. So, you know, you can turn around at the end of the day and say, hey, what did you do today? What did you do? Oh, let's look at that. And, you know, often we can just call each other into, you know, if we're working on a project that's running a bit longer, you can call each other into the room and say, hey, you got fresh eyes, have a look at this. What do you think? Oh, you know what, with fresh eyes, I think maybe it should be a little bit this way or that way. And so that's really nice to be able to, because of the number of us, to be able to get different opinions and different ways of looking at things. And we
1: show off stuff after we're done. Like, you know, if you might come up with a bizarre idea in the middle of a session because you're desperately looking for some kind of solution and you're like, oh, that worked. So then you share it with everybody, mm. which is great. You know, yeah. like I remember I did a commercial a while ago and I, had to, I did a sky replacement mm. on it and, uh, and Filmlight had just developed a grid warp tool and we, you know, we knew it existed, but we hadn't really found the ultimate use for it or anything yet. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll be useful for this and that, but we hadn't come across a commercial that needed it yet. And then I was doing the sky, and it was quite a long shot. And the the sky I was putting in was just a still. And I thought, well, why don't I just grid warp the sky and make it look like the clouds are moving? And, and it was perfect. And then that's now
2: something that we all kind of do.
0: Right? Yeah, that's great. Like you're all sharing things around.
2: That's part of the nice thing with having, you know, with having six colorists and, and four assistants, as well as just to be able to like, that's a group of people who are like-minded, to be able to share ideas. The assistants will come and say, hey, what do you think of this? And how can we do this? And then we have color meetings. We'll have a, like a, a department meeting every so often and we'll share stuff at the end of that. Hey, I found this new trick. All the release notes for the latest version of software go around. Somebody, if they have some time that day, will, will test it and share them and say, hey, this works, this doesn't work. You should try this new yeah. tool. Everyone's always on the lookout for something new.
0: Yeah, you got to keep current. And those of you who might have seen my "What is a colorist?" T-shirt, this originated from these guys. <laughs> now, when I walked in there, Eric was working on his own PR social media promo for their next little uh, swag giveaway, which uh, he's only been coloring it for four days. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Not quite. It's an Instagram <laughs> thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's important, you gotta, you know, it's all the,
2: all the stuff you gotta do, right? Yeah. yeah, it's very much about like, you know, we're just constantly trying to trying to push ourselves and, and, you know, by having a lot of like-minded people here, there's people you can bounce ideas off, you can, you know, you kind of wanna make sure everybody else is impressed. You're doing it as much for, you know, your, your peers as you are for yeah. the client as well. You wanna be able to show someone at the end of the day, hey, look what I did, yeah. you know, look how good this thing is. Yeah. And you know, it's nice to get feedback from other people. Like we, we sort of seek it out. It's not, you don't want to hide hide it away and not show it to people because you're scared they'll criticize you. It's great that they criticize you. They give you that feedback. They sort of say, did you try this? Did you try this? And and it sort of makes you internally explain why you got to where you got to. And you're like, oh, I could have done that a better way. Ah, you know what? I didn't think of that in the session. Maybe I should have tried something different.
1: The other thing that I think we've been big at doing since day one is is, you know, training and, and bringing up the next uh, generation too, because I think that's important. You know, you've got to, uh, like f- f- the f- four of our other colorists have all been our assistants, right? So we didn't just hire them off the street from another facility. Yeah. They've all grown up with yeah. the way we work and they understand the sensibility and the style. And uh, and that's that's important to try and groom the next, generation.
2: And we don't let any of their work go out of this facility without one of us seeing it. We're always like on top, like working with them. Hey, what did you do here? What did you do there? How did you do it? So they'll set some looks. They'll come to us and they'll sort of say, hey, what do you think of what I've done? And we'll try and give them some feedback and help them to... You know because it's as much our name as it is their name we want to make sure that when they send something out that people yeah. go wow those guys did a great job so we want to help them we're not going to tell them how to to do it and make sure that they change everything yeah. but we need to we need to make sure that they have the training and the understanding of what a colorist needs to do and what you can do to value add to a spot yeah.
0: i did that with you is that what it's said? Exa- exactly
2: exactly <laughs> all no, those all those late nights
0: so eric you mentioned a couple of small movies didn't you uh one of them was mad max which it wasn't a small movie it was a reasonably big movie reasonably big movie now there are a few myths about the movie uh you did like over 100 sky replacements or something is that right uh that a
2: that's a myth there was a lot more there's a lot, a
1: lot more than that i think it was something like <laughs> over 400 no, yeah really? maybe it even got to the 600 i didn't even bother counting after a while
0: was um, because you just wanted total control
1: over that Look. you know what you know what it, it actually yes yes and no but it, it started with you know when we were developing the look with george he really wanted to uh get a fair amount of color into the film he didn't want to have another desaturated bleached film like every other post-apocalyptic film had been and he wanted to get like blue in the sky to help uh break up the monotony of the beige from the rest of the film And uh, because the characters are all wearing beige, the desert's beige, the skin tone's beige, everything's beige, and now we need some, at least one bit of opposing color in there. Uh, But a lot of the times the skies were cloudy and white and crappy and dusty or something, right? And, you know, I just didn't feel comfortable just like grading that shitty looking sky blue. Like it just looks like you graded a shitty sky blue, right? and uh, but I remember I actually got the first I got a, a small selection of footage when I first started and I was just sort of experimenting with looks on these same you know 12 shots and there's this one shot and it's cars driving and the cameras moving all over the place and it's all just foggy and horrible at the back and I was like alright how do I make a blue sky in here and I tried tracking a sky and I could not track the sky. There was just no there was nothing to track. It was just a desert with no visible tracking markers in the background and white sky and moving cars and moving camera. And I so I tried putting it in, but no matter what you what I did, you could always see that it was not tracked right. And I try I must have tracked it a hundred times. And then I eventually I gave up and I said, mental note, don't offer sky replacements on this film. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't think I can I don't think I can do it. This whole film's gonna be like this. And I've only seen twelve shots and but then I got into the movie and I started grading and then I came across the, the first scene where it really needed something and I was like okay and you can't just fake it you got to change it so you got to really put a new sky in and so I, I thought I looked at all the shots and I think I could track that one I could track. uh oh, all right maybe I'll do this but I'll be very careful with George to make sure he knows that this is just for this scene right and so uh, you know, I changed basically all the skies in that scene to help it all uh, flow together a little bit better. Because you know, this film was shot over six months on different days, yeah. it's all over the place, right? And um, anyway, it worked and I was like, great. And then of course that, like I was fearing, that was now like a can of worms that you've opened. <laughs> oh great, now let's go in and uh, change every sky pretty much. Uh, um, and then I remember like, three months into the film or six months into the film i came across a shot and it was the same shot that i had struggled with but now that it was edited it was just a little bit shorter and then you know another 30 goes at it i managed to get a track and uh, and so i managed to actually achieve it
0: did you have a a team do you have a, a number two and a number three helping you do that sort of stuff
1: not really i ended up doing a lot of that myself but we did have a lot of the people here at alter ego uh would help on a lot of roto work um, but when it came to the skies i, I would t- tend to just do it myself because i wouldn't know necessarily if i was putting something in until i was actually doing it you know you'd come across a shot and go okay uh okay i'll get a sky and then I w- it was all about how can you make it visually impactful like how can you get i was looking for clouds that like pointed towards the object or, or towards shoot? the character did you shoot
0: did they shoot clouds and skies uh
1: they, they shot they some uh, the visual Flex supervisor on set shot some stills which we used and then i have a library of skies from the most boring holiday They're photos mainly
0: stills that you animate or movies just mo-
1: mostly stills okay. yeah um it, i mean the majority of that film were like 12 frame <laughs> cuts uh you can get away with a still pretty quickly uh so
2: anytime one of us goes on vacation we have to take we have to take sky stills it's like yeah here's a nice one now here's a picture of the sky so we can use it for if anyone ever goes
1: anywhere near a clean horizon if you're going on a boat bring your camera take sky photos you know that's um the motto so we literally have hundreds of skies in our library that we use and so it's great because for the film, there was a lot of guiding the eye, you know there was a, a lot of uh, stylistic choices. So we'd, we'd often look for a cloud pattern that kind of drew you to whatever was important in the frame. And so a lot of art direction or something. Or if it was a really tricky shot and I'm replacing a really blown out white sky with a blue sky, but there's, you know, fine hair detail in, and I was oh, I'm never gonna be able to get that key that good. I would just make sure I had a white cloud positioned around that area, so it didn't, you didn't yeah. show the problem off, right? Oh yeah. So there's a lot of just like looking for the right sky as you're grading.
0: Yeah. Right, right. And the day for night, a lot of people talk about the day for night scene as being really different. And some people can't believe that there was day for night now was it two stops overexposed is that the story that that? is true yeah
1: the and the reason for that was they they overexposed everything about two sometimes three stops just to the point where on the Alexa they never clipped any highlights so it always had the full range but uh, the advantage of doing that is when you stop that down you actually get a little bit of a strange kind of slightly creamy look because it's a bit overexposed Mm. but more importantly the shadow area is void of noise yeah. so if you're taking a regular image that is exposed normally and then you grade everything down but then you want to bring up like under the engine of a car or something like yes, that yeah. it's gonna go grainy because you're pushing it so far yeah. but because we're two stops over all the shadow area is actually very clear and the idea for the day for night is that you're seeing in the shadows but the highlights are down so it's a lot of it was a lot of like overall exposing the entire image all the way down and then selectively bringing up what we want to see Yeah,
0: it really well.
1: that just took a few shapes and a little <laughs> bit of roto <laughs> and
0: is George with you a lot of the way, Is he leave you going or is he very
1: over your shoulder? That was a very amazing and strange process for that film uh, so I went to Sydney and set looks with George and developed some looks uh, and then because we knew that it was gonna be such a time consuming process, he just left me with it. So I just worked on the film here in Toronto in between commercials right. over like 12 months and just graded it. And then uh, then I flew back to Sydney and we sat with George and we went through and you know fine tuned. But it was great, all those decisions and all the, you know. You know what it's like when you're grading? Is there, is there are some shots that just baffle you and they take a bit of time. And, and so a lot of it is great to be able to come back and revisit it and look at it and, and fine tune it and come up with a new idea or change this guy or change that. and It was great.
0: So while he was away playing uh, movies, Wade, you had to hang here and bill it, you know, pay the wages and
2: keep the doors open.
0: Keep the doors open, and Eric's doing all the glamour stuff. Is that
2: how it was? That, yeah, that's pretty much how it was. <laughs> that, that's how it is anyway. <laughs> no, it's it's, uh, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously, you know, the coloring is one side of it, and then there's, you know, the other, like, the rest of the business, the day-to-day stuff, and trying to keep everybody together and everybody motivated. And, you know, Eric's a big part of that. So when you take him out of the equation, it's sort of – it it makes for an interesting dynamic as to how we keep, keep things moving forward. But I think the one thing now is, like, you know, um, Eric's off – at the moment doing Lego 2 at, at, at times and I think what that does is it gives a lot of the other colorists a chance to, to get extra work so you know the company has a reputation that people will come and work with us and hopefully it's that well if I do, if I can't get this colorist I'll go with someone else at the, at the facility so a lot of the other guys benefit from you know from that as well um, it's you know we're busy there's a lot of work going through and, and hopefully we can just you know kind of keep that sort of momentum happening and then you know, Eric is here most of the year, it's just when he's, you know, when he's away on these films that sort of it gives other people a chance to shine. Um, You know, and, and I think the thing is if Eric and I vouch for these guys as well a lot of the time, like they don't really need it, but sometimes people are like, "Oh, well, I've never worked with them before. What are they like?" And it's like, "They're great. You'll have a great time," and and obviously the client does, and you know they love it. And then the plan, <laughs> you know, sometimes they'll never come back. They'll never come back to one of us. I'll stay with the other guys in the facility. But that's that's, that's the aim. That
0: works. Yeah, I mean, that's great, and you've got you've got to have that. gives you flexibility, isn't it? And they 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 will see that.
2: Yeah, and we're very confident in the other guys that we have, which is yeah. which is nice that we know that we can say, "Hey, you can work with anybody in the facility, and you'll get an equal quality job." So. That's a big plus.
0: So Lego 2, is that, are you doing that here in Toronto or are you doing
1: that? And doing that in Vancouver, uh, at the animation studio there.
0: It's okay. obviously hugely different challenges again.
1: Yeah. Different
0: uh, challenges. Well.
1: It's, uh, you know, it's a very interesting, it's an interesting film and it's an interesting process and it's actually really quite enjoyable coming back to animation so when I uh, left Canada the first time and I went back to Australia I ended up working for a while at Animalogic with and I did Happy Feet there and at the time that was Australia's first digitally animated film and it was a lot of new Challenges to work out. You know, how do we grade animation? Do we use mats? Do we not use? You know, and at the time everyone everyone's no, no, just do a balance over. It. It'll be fine. But then we quickly realized that you know, it's not. The balance wasn't going to cut it. We need to do a bit more. And then. Uh, before we knew it we were like having a whole team of people making mats and we were doing all kinds of stuff so then uh... that was a, great to see and then i came back to animal uh... a couple of years later and i did another film the legend of the guardians and then by that stage we had developed a bit of a pipeline we're like okay well let's let's use mats and flares and let's massage the image and, and animal took it up really responded really well to it and started using color as a way to help kind of uh... do the f- finishing touches on the effect shots and, and the, the animation. Yeah. Let's not do another turnaround of comp, which is going to take a day to render, to fix these little things that really are color issues most yeah. of the time. And so that's become part of their culture and part of their process now. And you know I, I did another film at Animal a couple of years later and each time the process is getting better and better because we find different things and so I haven't done a film at Animal for a couple of years now and then coming back to Lego again is like oh my god this is great all the all the stuff they put in place and there's layers and tracks and flares embedded into thi- like it's
2: great yeah. it's really good. Yeah. One of the things you asked before about like the how do you keep current I think it's, it's things like Like this, when you work on a feature, you work on a music video, where you take all the the techniques from that and you can start to apply it back into the commercial world. I mean, this, um, you know, Eric came back from Lego one time and said, oh, we're doing this great thing where we're putting all of our overlays, all of our flares and all this sort of stuff. It's all been coming from an EXR and we're compositing it in color. And we said, oh, how can we do that? And then I was working on a commercial Um, a car commercial that we had with with a whole lot of effects um, that the CG guys here had created. And they were like
1: semi-opaque effects.
2: Yeah, and then we're like, how are we gonna do this? How am I gonna grade the car and track on my windows to the grill and the badge and do all those things while that is happening in the middle of it? And then we thought, well, why don't we just do the same thing that they're doing on Lego in this situation and apply the effect in color so we spoke to our CG guys here and then half an hour later they came back here's an EXR with layered mats and we're putting all of the effect on here we've got full grading capacity over the effect as well as on the underlying layer of the car itself and you know the ability that that gave us the clients were blown away by what we could do they sort of yeah. said here oh, we need to change this a little bit and not thinking that we could necessarily do it because they're thinking everything is flattened but because we had access to all the layers It was. It gave us the ability to do a lot more than what they ever expected, and I think that's part of how we can, you know, we kind of keep things current by just all the different stuff that we do, not just getting stuck in the rut of just doing one commercial. There's plenty of storage. All the base sites have, uh, you know, a large amount of storage, and we all the base sites are interconnected with 10 gig networking, so we can work off any system at the same time. And we have a central SAN with massive storage as well for everyone to work on. And then all the projects are sh- shared with a central database, so we can open any project from any baseline at any time, and it's certainly made all that sort of stuff a lot easier for the, you know, going back and forth or looking at someone else's project or having to do a pickup on it. Or that's something we've been really
1: trying to build here and, and do a little differently to the average commercial shop. You know, in especially in Toronto, it's still very segmented. You know, it's like you go here for your color, or then you go to this place for your visual effects, or this place, but. We want to change that process. You, know, you don't have to do your color first and then you never touch it again. Like you can be doing it while you're doing your visual yes. effects. Right? And that's where you know, BLG files and stuff come into play and it's great. Uh, so we're trying to change that culture in the commercial world and it's, it's great to be able to, you know, like that car commercial, you're able to like have the look set and be grading it while the effects aren't even finished yet. While they're working on the same shot and effects, and they can see the grade on the effects, and yeah. then you're then you're turning some of the effects off and then putting back in color, and it's just a, it's it's
2: very fluid. One nice thing that Baselight are doing is they're working with Nukem, with Flame to export our BLG, so we can take our stack from Baselight, yeah. export that, and the guys in in Nukem, which is where we did a lot of the work for that job in particular it never has to come back to color. We don't have to render anything out because we're all working from the same plates, from the sand. They're putting the grade on there. They can render out. They can make any changes as they need to. We've done all the grade. We've done all the heavy lifting, the tracking and everything else. And they can just make any modifications, version all their versions up as they go. And it made it for a very seamless uh, project. We've had sessions where we're actually in color and online at the same time on the same day. So our VFX guys, whether it's Flame or Nuke will be working on the footage off the sand on the source footage while we're grading it, they'll be tracking everything, doing everything and we'll just supply the grades over to them or they'll supply their footage and we'll render out from here. So it's trying to, trying to find a different way of working all the time to be able to maximize, gives us the most amount of creative time in what is the time frames are getting shorter and shorter. Great,
0: great. That's a lot of talking. Uh, let's, go, let's go and get a beer. Uh, it's, it's Molson here, isn't it in Toronto? Is that what you drink? <laughs>
2: Pretty much. Moosehead? Yeah, Moosehead and Wilson Canadian.
0: (laughs) The International Colours Academy specialises in classroom training around the world. The classroom is the ultimate way to learn. So, whether you want to become Resolve certified or learn the subtleties of HDR grading, the ICA has a class for all levels, beginner to masterclass. You can find us at iColourist.com. uh we've just relocated from uh alter ego Uh, eric's left us he has to go and grade another feature and uh i'm with wade but we went in for dinner and it was so loud that we couldn't record anything it was a mess so we are now out on the streets of toronto and Wade, this is quite mild isn't it
2: this is great for this time of year it's we are november
0: yeah
2: it's uh You don't even need too thick of a jacket at this time. Sometimes it's snowing and sometimes it's warm. You never know what you're going to get.
0: Well, you guys were saying earlier that it really is, uh, it changes completely between the summer and the winter as to what people are like and what they're up to and what they're doing, is it right?
2: Yeah, stuff is always, uh, you know, it's very, very different from summer to winter. And the, the funny thing with that is when it comes to advertising is that we're always trying to be a season ahead of where we're at. So if we're in summer, we're trying to make it look like fall. If we're in fall, they're putting down snow blankets to make it look like winter. Then they'll shoot in winter, and we have to try and make it look more like it's spring. So there's always this challenge of trying to be one one step ahead of uh, of uh, where we're at. And if it's so, if it's a mild season, it's great because you know they can film in that uh, in that time and actually make it look like it's the next uh, next thing. Canadians have this thing about being non-seasonal with all of their advertising. So it. Uh, oh it doesn't work to, uh, you know, it works to our advantage and sometimes and other times it becomes incredibly challenging. Now, what's the big tower called? The CN Tower. It's uh, built as a, I think it's like a a phone tower and a a TV tower originally, and now it's become a bit of a tourist uh, tourist destination.
0: Why is it in uh, Queensland Maroons colours? Is there (laughs) any reason for that?
2: It changes colours every every uh, month or every event, so they can they can make it. You know, depends who's playing. If it was orange the other night for Halloween and it'll be green for St Paddy's Day, it'll be green and red for Christmas, so it just changes all the so time based on the season.
0: It's cool, and it's great, and it's one of the big ones, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's great. There's a little bit, of, you can go up top, and there's a glass floor you can look down. It's one of the tallest freestanding buildings in the world, so it's, uh, it's pretty cool to go to the top of.
0: Nice, nice. And um, so you were telling me earlier about your how you balance your colouring, with your management side of alter ego. How do you do that and what percentage do you have to go, right, I've got to do management stuff, and I've got to look after staff. Is that a hard balance? Yeah, it's a hard balance to make sure that you can,
2: you know, keep all staff happy as well as keep your clients happy. The one, uh, you know, the one thing that we sort of, uh, we look at is if we don't have good staff, we don't have any clients. So it's a real challenge to make sure that we keep you know, keep all the staff happy, make sure that they're all, you know, doing the thing that they need to be do that keeps the clients happy. And then, you know, when I'm in a session, I'm always working to make sure that the clients are, you know, getting the best experience that they can. And then as soon as you come out of that, you have to switch into the other mode and make sure that, you know, the management of the company, make sure <laughs> that the, the business side of things is still running yeah. and, you know, talk with staff and talk with uh, clients about the next job and all those sort of things. So it's a challenge for sure.
0: And it's like I suppose anyone who's getting in as like owner-operator. Obviously, you guys are in it on a bigger scale than, than most, but there's, there's quite a lot of, you know, as we say, colourists or creative people that are getting in and, and running their own shops now and doing their own things. It's just a juggle, isn't it? But you like the, you obviously like the time when you're in the room and you, you're grading like you always have, and then obviously you balance the other stuff out around it.
2: Yeah, I have to make sure that when I'm doing one thing or the other, I'm 100% focused on that. Staff don't want to know about you know any or other problems that you've had in a or session. Yeah. Like that or,
0: you know.
2: <laughs> so you have to take all their needs in, and then clients don't really care that you've you know that you've got the other things to take on. So when you're in a session, you've got to make sure that you're you're um, grading with the client and giving them 100% attention. And when you're with the staff, you've got to make sure that they feel that they're getting 100% attention as well. So it's it really is a balance to, to try yeah. and make that happen happen well.
0: Now, I said it wasn't cold, but I'm getting cold now. Are we just walking or are you taking me somewhere? Because... Let's, let's go to a hey, bar you know over you... the other side there. Oh, okay, we're going to cross, there's a tram. It's a bit scenic see. anyone yeah. who's ever been. I've never been to Toronto before, so it's good to... Uh...
2: It's called a streetcar in Toronto. streetcar, sorry. Yeah, but Wait, it's a tram, a tram to everybody else. Yes,
0: I'll call it a tram. <laughs> What's this place? This is a, uh, it's a temple. An Irish bar. Right, here we go. So we're going to this bar. And uh, we're in. Colour tour podcast tradition. We've relocated to Finn's, which is an Irish bar here in Toronto. And we have uh, a pint of Guinness, which I think is what you probably should do when you're in an Irish pub. And it's actually very nice. Uh, we were just chatting about how you get started. So how did, how did you get started, Wade? How did you get into the silly game of coloring? How did I get started? It was
2: I in high school. I did uh, I went and worked for free at a post house, doing stuffing VHS sleeves into into cases and doing whatever I could. And I did that in grade 11 and 12. And then in university, I. Basically did the same thing. I came back in, I worked for free, and then uh, it it got the opportunity where a job came up and I was like, I'll apply for it. I didn't know what it was. I was still in second year at the time. And um, when I got to university, I then started going back into post house and starting to work again for free in my vacation, just doing what I could to get into the industry. And then I sort of, I got offered a job and it was like, well, I'll take whatever there is. I was in second year university at the time of a three year course, sorry, in third year at that time three-year course and I think I still had about six months to go and it was sort of like do I take the job or do I finish my degree and in the end i kind of finished finished the degree and took the job and I think uh, I told the boss at the time that I was still trying to finish up my course and he said okay well can you start full-time in a month so for the first month of working there I was part-time which was you know back then 30 to 40 hours a week And then when it got to full time, it was, uh, you know, the usual 50, 60, 70 hour week. And I was trying to finish my own projects at the same time. And, you know, that's where I met you. And we kind of worked together for a while and worked on lots of long form projects and commercials and got to ask lots and lots of questions that I think the hard part is now for a lot of guys. Now you, you don't get that chance to get the apprenticeship time.
0: So that was. To so that was in Brisbane, in Australia.
2: Yeah, in two thousand
0: and one. So that was at cutting edge. You were a up and sort of up and coming premiere post house, I suppose, at the time. Yep. And doing lots of long form, lots of commercial, all sorts of things, anything um, that came in the door. The Sony
2: Vialta. Really. Yeah. That was an interesting experience working on the uh, on the Sony Vialta. I didn't really know much of anything else, but uh, we managed to make that thing sing. It was fun.
0: I, the one thing I remember about, you know, we, we did pull some big hours. It was mainly commercials in the daytime and then longer-form things, and then shows and transferring films, syncing sound. And we were getting smashed, and Wade was starting to move up to color. And we advertised in-house to this post house of probably 60 or 70 people, or anyone junior, that's across everybody, anybody there anybody would like a position as a colourist assistant and not one person applied Why? why would you when you <laughs> saw
2: what we had to go through in color <laughs> we used to work the hours back then so the editors could get a cushy in the morning they could walk up they could go oh my, my drive <laughs> is already my, my footage is already ingested it's great
0: there wasn't one person it was uh, it was a different game so it was good though i suppose we got a good grounding in short form long form and in Australia, that's what you always got is a big mixture of everything.
2: It was all hands on deck. We had to do whatever came in the door. You never, never sort of knew what was going
0: to happen. So were you really more focused on commercials then, or how did you? What did you think? I don't, I don't really know how it started. I kind of like,
2: I always wanted to be in the post side of things. I liked the, I liked the images. I like cinematography, at university and school, and but I also liked editing. So. I just thought always being in the post side and dealing with the images was was a natural fit. And I didn't know that much about color at the time. It was one of those situations where I came in as a university student and it costed a lot of money. So I just wanted to sit at the back of the room and be very quiet while somebody colored my film for me. And then I kind of got into it. And I, I thought, well, this is the job. I'll take it, I'll see what I get. And maybe I'll move into editing. And then just sort of fell in love with working with the image and being able to shape it and craft it. And, you know, I think to, what we were talking about earlier about the... There's a frustration that with the linear workflow you could never finish an image the way you can in a non-linear workflow. We'd always be like, oh, we'll have to hope that the VFX guy will composite those things back together and maybe we'll do a sky replacement. Yeah. Now I really feel we can shape the image so much better.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. The one story of Eric's I like to share, obviously can't be here because he's had to go was he relays the story that when they were doing dailies this is in brisbane where the telecine machine was before they could start he'd have to drive the to drive to the K's or so to the lab pick up the film and then drive it back himself before he transferred it and sunk the sound and then made all the labels to and go then on made top the of the labels it. and did the thing but I, you know, I suppose when you are a company like they were before I was there, you do those sort of things. That's a lot, you know. That's a hell of a lot commitment. But we all bought into it. That's yeah. what we. That's what we all. We, we, we
2: all had to do at the time, and it, and it was fun because we were all in it together. I mean, I spent countless nights, yeah, working overnight with you on we doing did. rushes for we you know a film that was then to be delayed by years coming out, but. You know, it was, we kind of, we sat there, we did it, we if, did our thing, if anyone and wants to get learned.
0: This film was a thing called The Great Raid. James Franco, he's done very well. Benjamin Bratt, done don't know what he's done. Joseph fine's done pretty well. And that was like four months of... And Connie, Connie Nelson. Yeah, yeah, she was So that was four months or, of like 1 a.m. starts, which was hard because it wasn't, really nights and it wasn't early mornings it wasn't late and it was a bit funny and it was a lot of film and uh, I'm still
2: mentally scarred I'm sure
0: you are so let's cut to the modern day where does Toronto stand in Canada in terms of production of say commercials or or long-form is it where does it sit
2: long form wise I think Vancouver has a because of the time zone with LA they have a lot of um, a lot of work that goes there it's very easy for people to get out of LA go up there to shoot and then you know get back but Toronto is so busy when it comes to long form like you anytime you drive around the street here you'll see streets closed off uh, for truck shooting stuff you'll see, New York cabs. You'll see New York subways lined up. You'll see huge explosion sets happening. There's a lot of a lot of long form stuff that happens here, but very little of it gets finished here. It all heads back to the states for you know for the post work.
0: And is when that it, just because that's the deal with the the offset? Is that where the producers want to work, or uh, uh, Canadian companies putting their hands up and saying we want to finish this? Or what do you think that is? I think it's
2: all of the above. I think the the tax credits play a big portion as to why people come and shoot here, as well as the Canadian dollar. Canadian dollar being a you know a big factor in saving thirty percent. Um, but then they also have deals tied up back in the U.S. to go and finish finish things up there. Um, the one thing that you know I think there's a lot of visual effects that happen here uh, with post companies, but when it comes to color and sound and edit, editorial, a lot of that will just go back to the uh, to the U.S. to finish up. When it comes to uh, commercial work, Toronto is the epicentre of Canada. Um, Vancouver does a little bit of commercial, Calgary, Montreal does a lot of their own commercial work, but really most of it is done in, in Toronto. So yeah. all the production companies, all, um, all the agencies, all of the uh, editorial posts, it all really happens here.
0: It's been great chatting, we'll end on that note. And where can people find what you're doing online? What have you got? Website, social media, where do they find you? Yeah,
2: alterigopost.com is our website, and then same alterigo post on uh, Instagram. And we're constantly trying to post new work that we've done, and interesting things that we work on, and little things that we're shooting and creating. So uh, yeah, go and check us out. But thanks very much, was. Um, uh,
0: mate. Short one. Thanks a so lot, buddy. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please tune in next month for another edition. If you have enjoyed the pod, then please leave feedback on iTunes or iColorist.com. Who would you like to see featured on the next Colour Tour podcast? You can contact me at Pod on Twitter.